My name is Scott Boren. I'm the community pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and it's great to be here to share with you this morning what I've sensed God is, has uh, for us to hear this uh, today. Uh, this is a great place to participate and to share life together, and, you know, we're just here to meet God. Today, we're going to do something very unique. We're going to move out of Luke chapter 2 into Luke chapter 3. We've only been in Luke chapter 2, say, six months, but it's a very long chapter. Very, very, I mean, there are, what, uh, 52 verses in Luke chapter 2. So we're going to move into Luke chapter 3, and we're going to deal with six verses this morning. And we're going to have some fun with that and, and, and see what God is saying to us through this scripture. Um, before I read the, the passage to you, I, I want to tell you a little story. Well, I, I used to live in Vancouver, British Columbia. I did live there for a few years. It's a very incredibly, wonderfully beautiful place to live. I mean, just, just, if you want a place during the summer to go and, and, and see God's beauty, that's a, a very nice place to go. But I lived there, and then one of the interesting things about living there that I didn't expect is, is that it is on a, a, near a fault line. And you know what comes with fault lines in this world is uh, periodic earthquakes. Now, I, I only got to experience one and it wasn't a very big one it was just a little disconcerting to wake up one early one morning kind of groggy I'm not a morning person and I rolled out of bed and soon thereafter the ground was a little bit shaky and I was like I don't know if I like this uh, this can stop any moment now please you know, it wasn't big enough to do any damage to any buildings or anything, but still, it was rather disconcerting. It was uh, not knowing, okay, when is this going to stop? Is this going to escalate? Is this going to diminish? Is this going to, please, Lord, I don't like this. I, I, I lived in a basement at that time. That was not fun. Um, so I'm like, oh, okay, that, I don't like that. You know, and like I said, it didn't last very long, and I can only imagine... Uh, what it's like to experience a, a big earthquake as, as has uh, many people around the world. Now I want you to imagine with me what it would be like if you lived in a, uh, somewhere and, and it was consistent earthquakes. You never knew when one was going to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking consistently they were happening. I mean, periodically, maybe even every day. You didn't know what the ground was going to do. It was unstable. The, the, you take a step, and you might not know where exactly the next step would fall. You didn't know if your home was going to be there or not, or what. It, it, it's constant movement of the earth. This is a, an analogy of what it can be like in a society or a culture or a period in history. And we see in one of those periods in history where there was constant movement, unpredictability, and even chaos was the first century especially in Jerusalem or in Israel. This was a time of a lot of chaos and a movement. People didn't know, quite know where they stood in this world. They didn't quite understand what their next step would be because it was quite obvious to them that their tomorrow was not a logical extension of their today. Everything was changing, everything was moving there was no stable ground for them to stand on if they looked in their culture or their society or their political situation. This is a kind of shifting life, uh, a chaotic kind of life. Let's read in the first few verses of chapter 3 
and we'll see some things that God is saying to that first century uh, setting of, of Israel and how he was going to minister to those people. It says there in verse 1, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now we'll move into the English part. He went into all the country, that is John the Baptist, went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of, of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked paths shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all the people will see God's salvation. Into the chaos of the first century. Into this unpredictability of life. Unpredictable uh, uh, political systems. Unpredictable, unpredictable cultural systems. Unpredictable social systems came hope. Because when things are unpredictable, hope can disappear. John the Baptist came with a message of hope. And he comes with a message to us this morning of hope. The Spirit comes to us this morning with a message of hope. And I want to invite you to join me in receiving this hope by standing and, and reaching across the aisles and grabbing a hand. And we're going to pray together that the Lord will speak into our, our hearts. Because words are meaningless unless the Spirit of God takes them and penetrates our heart with them so that you might have hope. So pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would open our hearts to your message of hope this morning. For those in this room who don't have hope, I pray that you would penetrate their hearts with hope. For those in this room who think they have it, but in reality they're hoping in something that's fleeting, I pray that you would re reveal the truth to them that our hope might be in you, Jesus, the rock of our salvation, the only one in whom we can hope and have salvation. Lord, we pray for the people on our right. I pray, we pray that you would bless them, and we choose to bless them with our prayers and invite you to do a work in our, the friend on our right, that they might receive a new, fresh touch from you. We pray for the persons on our left and pray that you would penetrate to the parts of their, their spirit, the deep parts of their spirit that they don't even recognize every day, that they don't even acknowledge every day because it's so deep and so central to the core of our being. I pray, we pray that you would change the person on our left at that deep part and that hope might well up from their inner being and flow out of them. We give you glory for this and thank you that you are the rock of our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In the first century, we, we learn a few things about what the situation through these first uh, 
two verses. Tiberius Caesar was in charge. He was the Roman emperor. And he was not a nice guy. He was rather brutal. And he demanded that he be worshipped as God. And he was, Rome had direct oversight of Jerusalem. And for, that to, for those people and, and Jewish people who were worshippers of Yahweh to have a demand of their ruler to worship that person, it was, it was disconcerting. They knew it was not supposed to be that way. Pontius Pilate oversaw them as, a, as an emissary from Tiberius Caesar, and he was not the best of guys either. Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, they were both power-hungry rulers who were trying to grab in on their part of the chaos of the first century. Because you see, when chaos reigns, when chaos rules, people fight for power. And these rulers of this time are, are listed for us in these first two verses not to just establish a, a historical time period. If Luke were just going to tell us when this happened, all he needed to say was in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. That establishes a timeline. But he lists all these other leaders of the time. He also lists two, listed two high priests, Ananias and Caiaphas. Why would he list these guys? Because religious rulers are supposed to not be fighting for authority, not supposed to be fighting for control, are not supposed to be caught up in the chaos. But history tells us they were. They were power-hungry rulers just as much as anybody else of the time. And they were fighting for authority, fighting for control during this time of chaos. In fact, we learn that one of uh, the Philip, the Tetrarch of Atyria, he, he even built a, a, a political monument or political building on top of a Jewish burial ground. Something you don't do in that time. I mean, this was a very disconcerting, troubling, chaotic time for first century Israel. And in fact, in first century history, in the history of first century, it is known as one of those topsy-turvy, tumultuous times in the history of mankind. Lots of change occurred. Lots of chaos was going on. Transition was the name of the game. And at the center of that was the Middle East. At the center of the change that was going on in that world were these Jewish people. I think a lot of us can relate to that today. There's chaos in this time of history, but there's chaos in this time of history. In our day, the world today is impossible to describe. Because as soon as you read a brand new book that describes the current state of our social, uh, social culture, cultural society, as soon as you read it, it's, it's irrelevant because it's going to change tomorrow. Things are changing on a dime. Change is occurring at every turn of our lives. And with this change comes some cool advancements. Just think about it. 25 years ago, most of the people in, that lived in the Twin Cities area did not have air conditioning. I mean, in Texas, we had, I think, more people had it earlier. I could not imagine living in Houston, Texas, without air conditioning. I mean, it's miserable living there in the summer with air conditioning. I mean, the humidity ch chases you everywhere there. 
even when and you're inside the house. I mean, it's, I can't imagine what life would have been like to live in some of the hotter places in the world, and some people would still do, but you know, we have these advances and these changes that have occurred. Uh, I talked to uh, uh, one of our Covenant Group coaches a few weeks ago about a computer he purchased uh, in 1984. It was a Macintosh Apple, was it called an Apple Plus? And it had 512K of memory. That's fast. You know, I mean, it was RAM. I'm not talking about ROM uh, because he didn't have a hard drive. He had to put floppies in there to, to store anything. He spent $3,000 on this computer. And you can buy five computers for that price now that can store enormously amount more. Of, I mean, you can store more on an iPod than that computer could handle. I mean, a little bitty one of those little bitty ones. I mean, it's, just, it's phenomenal the change that we have, we've encountered over the last few years. In fact, Bill Gates said a few years ago that nobody would need more than 40 megabytes of memory on their computer. I mean, there are, there are programs now that require 500 gigs. I mean, tons of memory. I mean, the things that are occurring now in our, in our society are just phenomenally, astronomically fast. The advances are changing on a dime. In fact, a man came up to me last night and said that uh, he has a son who works for Honeywell here in town, and they're partnering with Ford to develop a car that you won't have to drive. You'll just program in your destination. And in fact, this car will respond to p potential emergencies faster than you have the ability to respond. I'm not saying they're going, whoa. Talk about freak out my grandparents. <laughs> they blame it on demons or something. I mean, this is weird. I mean, this is shocking kind of stuff. And all of this is happening every day. We can't predict the world we live in, we thought computers and cell phones and stuff would make our lives easier. Now just people can reach us everywhere. I mean, with the advances, yes, it's cool to have a cell phone, but there's also the downside of some of these advances and these changes and keeping up. I can't keep up with it all. I mean, when people start, our IT guy here on staff, when he starts talking techno babble, I go, I just turned it off. I go, you go figure that out and come tell me what I need to know. Other than that, leave me out of the conversation. Because you lost me about two paragraphs ago. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a world that we cannot keep up with. It's change every time we turn around. Tomorrow is not a logical extension of today. We cannot predict the next step. We cannot predict where the ground is going to shift. Let me give you a few examples of this unpredictability. A few years ago, Enron was one of the most reputable companies in America with some of the richest people in America. Now, it's the black eye of America, American business with some of the poorest people who used, to live, who used to work there. And many of these people didn't do anything wrong. They just had their stock all in Enron. Overnight, boom, gone. No one could have predicted that. For some in this room, you've had your boss come to you and say, you know, we're restructuring your job, and you can either take the severance or we can train you in this new job over here. And you get trained in that new job, and two years later they come to you and say, uh, we're shipping your job off 
to the Far East, and uh, you can take this severance, or you can re be retrained to do this job. Do you realize that many times when you call a customer service line, you're talking to someone in the Far East, and they speak English just like you or me? Well, maybe not with a Midwest accent. You do have an accent, you realize that. Just watch Fargo. Man, that's a weird thing. That's You guys aren't that bad. I know, I have one too, so we all have accents. I grew up on a farm. Farm is one of the most stable industries there is, you would think. I was on a plane, and I, there was, I was sitting next to a man who was a, a, a trainer for John Deere. And I asked him, okay, you go around the country training people in what? How to drive a tractor? I mean, I grew up driving tractors. It's not that big a deal. And he said, no, 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 listen. We're developing machines that are operatorless. Big sprayers that work for eight hours, 12 hours, round the clock, without anyone sitting in them. Someone operates them from a room. In fact, they can operate five or six of them at the same time. I'm like, what? I mean, farmers are dealing with change left and right. What about the elderly as of late? What they have had to endure and I mean endure with regard to pres prescription drugs over the last few months and the changes that have come with how they get the drugs that they need. Living accommodations. You know, my parents lived in the same house for 38 years where I grew up. I've lived in 38 different places, I think, since I moved out of the house. <laughs> well, that's a bit extreme, but nearly... The nuclear family is changing all the time. It's his kids and her kids and our kids. And get carting around kids and, you know, it's, 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 it's so different than it was. The instability of our life, it's chaos many times and that adds to the stress. Here are a few statistics I'd like to read to you. 42% of working adults feel used up by the end of the day. 69% would like to live a more relaxed life. In fact, our statistics reveal that Americans work more hours than any other people group around the world. Parents today spend 40% less time with their children than they did 30 years ago. 40% less time. Quality of life has decreased by 51% while consumption is up by 45% over the last 20 years. In, in, in other words, over the last 20 years, consumption of, of consumer goods has increased by 45%, but while quality of life, the quality of life index has de decreased by 51%. Only 21% of young people today think they will achieve the good life, while 20 years ago, 41% did. Why? Because young people are honest. They're looking at reality. And most of us don't necessarily like to look at this reality. We don't necessarily want to look at the big monkey in the side of the room and say and call it what it is. We look around at our lives and we see the chaos, but to acknowledge it, to talk about it. But you know, God deals with reality. He's not a Pollyanna God who's going to come and Put a little cake on top of your messed up life. 
put a little icing on top of the real stuff that's going on in your life. He wants to deal with the real stuff. That's the kind of gracious God he wants. He is, and how big of a God he is. He's not going to just create a nice little program to make you feel better. He's going to deal with the reality. He's going to deal with this ground that is moving all the time and the realities we face every day. These realities can feel like when we deal in living this life in the midst of these realities can feel like riding a roller coaster. Up and down, up and down. Your emotions are up and you have hope one day because your emotions are good. But then you run out of money and whoo, there goes the hope. Or your boss comes to you and says, you know, you're not doing a very good job. There goes the hope. Family situations arise. There goes the hope. You have a car accident. There goes the hope. We put our hope so many times in our circumstances. We, we are only looking at what is going on today, and we are tie, our hope is tied to what, how we feel about right now. And up and down and up and down we go. And, and the chaos that comes, the chaos bombards us. And this roller coaster takes us for a ride. Because the chaos isn't going away. Because we, we live in one of those times in the history of mankind that we cannot control. It's just the reality, and social scientists tell us that the amount of change that we face every day is not supposed to happen. Life is not supposed to happen this way. We're not made to live in the midst of this chaos as a normal part of life and to focus on the ups and downs of it. It can put us into a tailspin if we allow it. People on this roller coaster can respond to it in one of three ways, I found. There may be others, but I'd like to point out these three. The first is to ignore it. We can ignore the roller coaster. We can ignore the chaos. This is what I do with the 10 o'clock news. Quite honestly, if I'm watching something from 9 to 10 o'clock, I switch the channel at 10 o'clock because the philosophy of local news is if it bleeds, it leads. So, quite honestly, I don't want to be depressed. So I can't handle that. I, I choose to ignore it. Now, is that the best way to handle the local news? Probably not. But I found that I don't need that at 10 o'clock at night. And we can do that with chaos and the realities. And we can carry that mindset. I can carry that mindset of 10 o'clock in the evening into the rest of my life and ignore the, ignore the realities of chaos. But when I do that... I allow chaos to take over. It's the equivalent of having a brand new Mercedes-Benz. You haven't even driven it yet. And you give it to your 10-year-old and say, go for a spin. They're going to wreck your car. When we don't acknowledge the chaos that is going around, you're giving your keys to chaos. The keys of your life. And it'll, it'll draw you into its vortex, and you'll become so busy and driven and, 
and trying to make stuff happen and you'll do this and you do that and you're responding to the whims of this world five ten years from now you look upon your life and you go what in the world did I do reaction number two that many people take is that of survival this is the reaction that the leaders of the first that the first century uh, of, of the first century took that Luke points to. The sur- it's more like survival of the fittest, actually. Competition, control, manipulation, fighting for power, seeking security by dominating others. We do this all the time without even knowing it. Trying to get our way, make things happen so we'll feel better about things, even control our own lives. We've got this elaborate time management systems how we can pack more into less time or we just take on another job because we have to you know we've got bills and we've got this and we've got that and we've got to keep up with the Joneses and and the pressure to keep to do stuff in this in this life and there are realities that we face the chaos is there and we can fight against it and we can even assume the the rules of chaos and use those rules to try to get ahead Reaction number three is despair. There are a lot of people who look around and they say, I can't keep up. I'm not as talented. I don't have the privileges. I didn't have the upbringing that would allow me to be successful in this world so that I can survive and compete. So what choice do I have but to despair and look at my life and go, well, if I can just make it through. We're often lulled into thinking that this chaotic way of life is the only option while it chips away at the core of who we are. You see, there are times in the history of the world when there have been mammoth changes. World War II, World War I. There are examples of that. The Civil War. I mean, there were huge instantaneous changes that shaped everything about life or reshaped everything about life but the kind of changes that we're facing aren't necessarily the mammoth changes like that but lots and lots of little changes that stacked on top of one another are changing life right before our faces and we can despair over that because this chaos can build up and build up and act as a parasite eating away at our insides we have lived in this chaos and I want to call it chaos because that's what it is because like I said God deals with our realities we do not have to ignore it and we have lived and chosen to live in in the midst of this but it doesn't work ignoring, surviving and despairing does not work we need hope in the midst of it we need God to, trans, to give us a rare treasure. Because most people that we are surrounded by in our daily lives don't have it. Yeah, they may smile, they may be happy, but there is, they're lacking hope, and we can buy into that same pattern. John the Baptist spoke a, a, a fresh, hopeful word. He went, it says there, he went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John the Baptist was not your nice little preacher who came and said, you know, come follow Jesus. 
He has a way for you if you will just trust him. He shocked them. I mean, here was a man. He was weird. He didn't go into the authorities. He didn't go to the right places to preach. He didn't go into the temple to preach. And he didn't wear a collar. He wore camel skins and he ate locusts and honey. He was a weirdo. He wanted to catch their attention because he saw into heaven and saw something that everybody else didn't see. You don't want to hear preachers who tell you what you already know. You don't want to read nice little books that tell you what you already know. You want to hear something from somebody that has heard something from God that you don't have in your life. And that's what John the Baptist came saying, I've got something for you. Listen to me. This message caught him. He had hope for Israel while people didn't have hope because they bought into the status quo. And he was saying, the status quo will kill you. Don't let it kill you. Repent. That's what John the Baptist, he shocked them to their core. He said, Jesus is coming. Don't miss it. He said, repent. What does that mean? A lot of times we just think it means feeling sorry for our sins and, and, and coming around and going, oh God, forgive me, oh God, forgive me. And that's part of it. But repentance, the baptism of repentance is, is saying, he's calling and saying, you're focusing on this. You're focusing over here. You're trying to get hope by looking at the status quo, looking at the ways of the world. Repent of that and turn around and look at this. Amen. That is repentance. Repentance has to do with the way we live every day, not just what happens here at the altar. Not just feeling sorry for what you've done. Repentance has to, has to do with where your focus lies. And he's calling them not out of just their their sins and what they're doing wrong. He's calling them out of their focus to refocus on something different, to refocus on a radical new place of hope because God was about to break in. And I want to say to us in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this time of history, because when there are tr radical transformations in times of history like this, is the opportunity for God to do the most in our lives. This is a, a rare time in history when we can be a part of something huge if we will repent and not focus on the status quo because the status quo will eat us from the inside out into our chaos comes hope Albert Einstein said this he defined insanity insanity as doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Should I repeat that? <laughs> Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again while expecting different results. In other words, John the Baptist understood this. He said, your focus is wrong. Repent of that, and you'll get different results when you focus on this. God's coming. Don't focus on the ups and downs of this world. You're not going to find hope there. You're not going to find anything different there. Turn away from that. Repent. Be baptized. And I'm not talking about just being dunked one time. I'm talking about inner transformation that we need all the time. I need to be baptized. I need to be changed from the inside out on a daily basis. I need to repent away from this and say, I'm going to focus on Jesus today. I'm not going to let the roller coaster kill me. Because it will. The roller coaster will kill us. Because we are not made to live on that kind of roller coaster all the time. It's, it's nice to ride a roller coaster, but could you imagine trying to eat a meal on it? 
We've got to eat. There's got to be something beyond the roller coaster. There's got to be another option. An option that is solid ground. Not an earthquake. A solid rock on whom we can stand. And we have this hope not because we're wishing, not because we're dreaming, but because it's real. It is a real hope based upon facts and upon a man named Jesus. We have this hope because Jesus is doing a new thing in this day. It says in Philippians 1.6, Paul writes this, and this is the message translation. There has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish on the very day Christ Jesus appears. Your life is going to come to a flourishing finish, not just coasting in, kind of making it through, kind of doing this, you know, kind of making it by. Oh, I'm glad I made it to heaven. Whew. Wow, barely slipped in. I'm glad you're gracious, God. You're going to go, like my son does. Phew, that was close. No, God's at work in you. He's at work in me. So there's times in my life that I found when I'm going through the doldrums or I, there's something wrong going on or the finances aren't working out right or this or that's not working out right. And I go, what am I doing wrong? How is it? I need to change this or I need to change that. I'm going to let, let you in on a little secret. You can do everything right and still we live in chaos and there are things that are going on in this chaotic world that's going to come against us. And I don't care what Dr. Phil or, or Miss Oprah has to tell us, we cannot live a perfect life. There is something he's calling to is a trust and a hope in him in the midst of the chaos. The roller, you know, getting off the roller coaster, my goodness, I'm not sure we have much choice. This is life unless you're going to go live in the monastery. We have pressures and we have to deal with those, but we can't allow the focus on the roller coaster to control us. Because that is insanity. He is at work and he is not through with me. He's not through with you. He, by the power of the Spirit, is at work in you and I and he will bring it to a finish. I don't have to make it happen. That's good. Because I... If you knew me, you'd be going, oh, hopeless case. I mean, it's God. I look back on what God has done in my life and go, wow, God, you're cool. You have changed me. You have done the work. You have manifested your work in me. And when I look at my life and go, man, I'm not happy with that, but I don't know how to change it, God says, ah, I can get involved in that. I can do something with that. It says in the next few verses, is a quotation from Isaiah. It says, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, and all people will see God's salvation. It says about mountains being brought low and the valleys being raised up. We get off the roller coaster, in other words, because God's doing a new work in us. Prepare the way of the Lord. God's coming. God's at work. But you and I have to away for him we have to create a portal for him for those of you who are sci-fi fanatics for those of us who don't get into that we have to open the door 
So maybe I caught two audiences there. I don't know. We have, he wants to do a new thing in our lives. He wants to do a new thing in his church. But unless we prepare the way for him, make a way, make straight paths for him, his salvation is there. His new life is there. But we must prepare a way, a way of order in the midst of the chaos. You know, we have a choice in the midst of this chaos. We have a choice of whether we're going to buy into the roller coaster life or we're going to look beyond the roller coaster life. You can't ignore it. It's there. But we do have a choice of what we're going to do with it. Viktor Frankl was a survivor of the Holocaust. He lived in Auschwitz. He was a psychoanalyst. And he wrote about his experience and how he was stripped naked and beaten. How he was forced down muddy streets and people were kicked over and brutally beaten just because they fell down. I mean, the life he describes was just horrible upon horrible. And he describes for us the people who entered into despair because they lost hope. But he didn't lose hope. And he says he survived not because they didn't kill him, but because he didn't let them dictate his hope. In fact, he writes... Everything, repeat everything, just say that, everything. everything. Everything can be taken from a man but the last of human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. Here's a man who knew this statement. He knew that. He wasn't just theorizing about it or writing a nice philosophy about it. He lived it. And we have a choice. Now, it's easier said than done. I, mean, I bet there were many times he was sitting there wondering how he was going to make it. We often are, are fighting things in our lives and situations in our lives, and we think, are we going to make it? You know, but God isn't in a hurry. He's got a long view in mind. He's reshaping you and me in the midst of the trials that we go through and, and in the midst of this chaotic life. And we need to learn to let the chaos that's around us, this roller coaster, prod us to a new hope. God wants to use these things to create a new hope in our hearts and drive that hope deep within our being. That's what he's doing in our midst. He's not trying to take us out of the circumstances. He wants to use our circumstances to, to prod us to, to him. To make us into new people. He's using this stuff of life. He doesn't necessarily like it. I don't even think this chaos was meant to be. Necessarily. But he's going to use it. For his kingdom. Because that's how big a God we have. And therefore we can have. A hopeful expectation. Because he is breaking through into our lives. And when we have financial difficulties. That prods us to Jesus. When we have troubled emotions. That prods us to a new hope in Jesus. When we see family division rising up. That prods us to Jesus. When we enter into conflict with people at church and we think, do I need to leave this church? I don't necessarily think I like what's going on there. Don't, don't leave. Prod, let that prod you to Jesus. Don't let the stuff of this world steal what God is doing in the midst of your life. Because we can run from trouble, but you'll run from trouble from now till you die. Because trouble is here. But he can, God can use that trouble and turn it on its head. 
He can take that trouble and turn it on its head and and use it to his advantage. And then you can look at trouble and go, God won again. God won again. But we have to prepare a way. We have to prepare a way in this time of chaos. We're embarking on a journey beyond, embarking upon a journey beyond the roller coaster. And as we close today, we're going to worship together. And you may be in a place where you don't have much hope. In fact, you may be despairing. You may, you may be sitting there wondering, you know, I can't make it right now. I, I, or, or you may think, oh, my life is great because everything's going really well. Is your hope in the wrong thing? Are you hoping in, in your circumstances and because they're good, you feel good and you think you have hope? Let me read to you from Romans 8, verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Hope that is seen through the eyes of your circumstances is not hope. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, We wait for it patiently. There is a rhythm to God life. He's not in a hurry. The chaos of this world tells us you need to have it now. God says, that's not my rhythm. That's that's chaos's rhythm. Are we going to get in on his rhythm and make a way? Wait upon him, worship him, focus on him, repent? Live into him. I want you to stand right now. I want you just to focus on Jesus and imagine he's standing right near you, right beside you, and just focus on him, the one who has come into this world, the one who has come into our lives to make a change in us. And I want us to worship him. Let us worship him.
and thousands elsewhere. One thing I ask, and I would see to see your beauty, to find you in the place your glory dwells. One thing I ask, one thing I ask, and I would see your beauty to find you in the place your glory dwells better is one day in your courts better is one day in your house better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere better is one day in your courts Better is the one day in your house, better is the one day in your courts, and thousands elsewhere. Oh, better is one day, better is the one day, better is the one day, and thousands elsewhere. Better is the one day, better is the one. after me. Jesus, my hope is in you. You are my rock, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? We bless you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace and be blessed.